Mike mentioned this morning as we've been going through foundations that uh, this term we've been looking at the person of Christ, who he is, we've been looking at the, um, the work of Christ and over these last few weeks we've been looking at salvation and answering essentially the question, how does salvation actually work? How is it that people come to faith in Jesus? And in this is an inherent question of basically what we're answering is, how is it designed? What we're trying to do is kind of taking God's plan and just opening that box a little bit and trying to wrap our finite minds around a little bit of what he has uh, revealed in the pages of his word in the Bible. So that's kind of the angle at which we're approaching this. How is salvation designed? Or how is it planned? And we've been working our way through a series of questions because we move through uh, what we're talking about just by way of review. Uh, our next slide, you can see that we asked this question as we tried to approach this uh, a few weeks ago and asking ourselves, how much has sin actually impacted us as human beings? And this is where we started, and I'm just reviewing it because actually all five of these, what's called doctrines of grace, as we mentioned before, flow together. It's a foundational question, uh, the answer to how we bring uh, an answer to this question because it sets a course of travel, if you will, through the rest. It's a bit of a watershed issue. And we answered it this way, if we go to our next slide, that we are all so completely affected by sin that we cannot and will not take steps toward God without Him doing something in us first. That the impact of sin upon us is total. It is complete. Or if you think of it in these terms, remember we're not all um, as bad as we possibly could be or equally bad, but we are all completely pervasively infected with sin. That it affects our minds, it affects uh, our bodies, everything about us. So that was question number one. Just reviewing these again because we're going to jump forward a question tonight. Because as we think about salvation and we think about the choice in salvation, we have to ask the question, whose choice takes precedence? Whose choice takes precedence? Which one, uh, if, if you think of God's choice and human choice, which is the one that logically must come first? And in light of what we looked at in total depravity or the fact that we are all just so completely and thoroughly impacted by sin, you have to see how God's choice is the one that must take precedence because none of us would or could choose God apart from God doing something in us first. And so this is where how we answer that first question begins to guide us through some of these other questions. That salvation, if we go to the next slide, it's right here, is not dependent on individuals choosing God, but rather on the completely independent choice of individuals by God. That God did not look down through time and see what I would do or what any of us would do and base his choice on that. Now when it says that when we look at the Bible and we think that all Christians who don't believe in universalism, what universalism is, is basically that everybody will be saved and go to heaven. Now that's not a teaching of Scripture because uh, Scripture clearly teaches that there are some who will not repent and turn to Christ and that there is divine and eternal punishment in hell for that. The question is, 
How is salvation applied and how does it work? Because whether we take the position that I will tonight, which is reflective of who we are as, as a church or not, there is a sense in which the application of salvation is limited. The question is, how is that happening? Is it based on God choosing people based on what they would choose, or do people choose based on what God prior chooses? See, if we make the choice, what we argued last week, if it's based on what God choosing us based on what we would do, the force of it actually being a choice of God's goes away. It's kind of like saying, okay, you want to choose, I'll choose you. You kind of get how that doesn't really amount to much of a choice. It removes the force of the concept. And so we looked at passages where it talks about to foreknow is God actually, it's a term that means relationally, and it's almost equivalent to the idea of God choosing people as difficult, as complicated as this is for us to wrap our minds around. So we looked at these examples of alternative terms to help us with these traditional expressions of what's known as the doctrines of grace or Calvinism. One is total depravity, which I mentioned already, which a a way to think of that differently and I think more helpful, uh, a little more accurate, is pervasive corruption. That idea that sin extends to corrupting every part of us. And we looked at this idea of choice, which I just recapped a little bit, as unconditional election, that idea that God's choice of somebody is not dependent on what he sees in them, any good or any foreseen faith, but rather it's a choice by his grace, sovereignly so. Nothing uh, coerces him to make it, he makes it freely on his own. Now I just reviewed the last two weeks in about five minutes, so if it felt like a Quick overview, and you weren't here in the last two weeks, I apologize. Maybe you could uh, take a look at those on YouTube if you want, or talk to me afterwards to try to recap that a little bit more. But we're going to pursue a further question tonight, and that is answering this question. If we go to the next slide, for whom exactly did Christ die? For whom exactly did Christ die? What did his death do? And some of you instantaneously are probably saying, this is easy. How could we possibly be having a conversation about this tonight? Jesus died for the sins of the world. Done. I'm going to pray now. They're going to come and sing and we'll leave. All right. But this is a question that we need to think perhaps a little more deeply about. And it's a question, again, of intent and design. What did God mean to do when Jesus bled on the cross? What did God intend to happen? And if we think with any seriousness about this, there's, there's really about two options we come to. I'll, I'll touch on a third, but I've already touched on it a little bit. The first option, option number one will be on the screen, is that the death of Jesus made atonement possible. It made it possible. It's like a provision. It's like he, uh, well, we've heard sal- we hear of salvation as a gift. So we say salvation is the gift of God, right? That's a little more in depth than that. But if we think of it like a gift and he makes it possible for us to receive, that the scope of it is general. It's, it's for the world. He died for the sins of the world, and he makes it possible then for that provision 
and it's based on what we do with it, whether that atonement is realized or not. Which, at first, listening, you may think, well, that, that sounds reasonable. That makes sense. The idea of it being like a gift that is offered and paid for but is refused. But there's another option, option number two, which the idea is this, is that the death of Jesus was not something that makes atonement possible, but it is an actual atonement. That when he died on the cross, it was and secured an atonement. When Jesus died, he says, it is finished. And rather than it being general in scope, I would put to you that we're going to look at some dynamics where we can see that it is more specific and more particular, which is why we told tonight's talk about particular redemption. That while option number one says it's a provision for all, option number two says it is finished for some. While the option one says it's about human choice, option two says it's about God's choice. That all those whom he foreknew will come. Now, as we talk about this, you may be thinking, this is, this is stretching. <laughs> I'm not sure how comfortable I am with these terms because it doesn't necessarily fit with what we've processed in terms of salvation. But I want to put to you tonight that option number two is better. And I want to walk you through that. It's a bit like the dating game. Is that, is that something in this country, the dating game? Did you guys have, I remember as a kid, there was bachelor number one, bachelor number two, bachelor number three, and there would be somebody on the other side of the screen, and somebody would interview these people over here, and you decide which one's the best one. Not, not to bring it down to that level, but I, I want us to go to Scripture and our thinking and put before you tonight why Option two is better. If we go to the next slide, this is our statement, if you will, about this idea of the atonement. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross actually accomplished the salvation of only those for whom he died. So as we continue working through our... Uh, our different words that we've been working through in these doctrines. We've been working, again, the traditional wording, if we put up on the next slide, of this idea of we had total depravity, unconditional election. This traditional wording is usually known as limited atonement. And again, we're rewording this to particular redemption because I don't think limited atonement is a helpful word because limited can make it sound like something about Jesus' death on the cross was insufficient. That somehow Christ's death didn't do it for us. And actually, I would put before you tonight that his death is actually of infinite worth. He's the son of God. I mean, he died as a substitute. It is that we talked about what he did for us on the cross when we looked at the person and work. It's of infinite value because he is the God-man. So this is a point of agreement whether we go with option one or option two just a minute ago. Because I had some interesting conversations last week with some people who are definitely thinking more option one. And that may be you in the room tonight, and that's okay. <laughs> because we are, we are this, is, this is about an internal discussion of us thinking through how does salvation work. 
it's a, like an in-family. Do you guys have in-family discussions, you know, usually around the kitchen table or something like that? And you can, you can chat, hopefully, chat things through openly and disagree and look at things from different angles. And this is the angle which we come at things as, as a church, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that people who come at it from a slightly different angle are poor Christians. In fact, we can have our doctrine right and not be following Jesus very well in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. So we just need to keep these things in perspective that whether we share agreement on things or whether there's points that are non-essential but important around which we disagree, that we do so as a family. Does, does that make sense? So this is a point of agreement because we all believe, you know, if, if you believe option number one, that Jesus died for the sins of the world in general, then you have to believe his death is of infinite value. If you take option number two, you believe the same. The question is not how sufficient is Jesus' death. The question is how and why is it limited? Because option number one, whether we care to admit it or not, limits the atonement. How does it limit it? By what people choose to do with it. It's limited by God. If you take that option and say, well, Jesus made provision and offers a gift, but it's limited in its effectiveness to those who receive it. Whereas option number two would say, no, it's limited by those whom God has chosen as his own. And so the entire world, if we look at this, when we say limited atonement, we're not saying that Christ's death is somehow insufficient or limited, or that in some way the life and ministry of Jesus in the world has had some sort of limited impact on it. The, the, life, in Jesus, the life of Jesus has had an extraordinary impact on the history of the world. The entire world has been positively impacted by his one single life, even short of salvation. That much good has happened, but when we think about this idea of the atonement, is there reason to think, apart from our gut reaction to it, that the atonement was intended to be limited? Is there reason to believe that? Now what I want to do with the time that we have is just walk through a couple of biblical terms and an assortment of verses that help us process through this. So let's look at this first verse in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And it says this, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. This is speaking of the, the lamb who was slain, it's Jesus. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This idea of purchasing is the biblical word of redemption. Redemption means liberation from bondage, liberation from slavery through the payment of a price. Now notice it says of Jesus that he paid a price and purchased people for God. And notice the global scope of it. From every tribe and language, and people, and nation. 
So note that global dynamic because we're going to come back to it because I know maybe going through somebody's mind already is running forward, but what about the world and Jesus dying for the world and how does that work? We're going to get there, trust me. But when we look at this idea of God, of Jesus purchasing people, this idea of the payment of a price with redemption is this thought of is if, if Jesus paid a price, redemption means there's been the completed liberation. Does that make sense? So when it's saying that the death of Jesus through his shed blood, there is redemption accomplished, it's not saying there is the possibility of redemption. It's saying redemption has happened. Like if you went, not that you would do this because I'm sure most of us in the room probably are better at handling finances than this, but if for some reason you were short at the end of the month and you decided I'm going to go pawn something down on Tollworth Broadway. Maybe you have an old guitar sitting in a closet or a cupboard or uh, something of limited value. And so you go back in a couple weeks' time, you pay the exorbitant interest, you pay the price. Are you going to leave without the item? No. That wouldn't be redeeming it. That would be dumb. That would be giving those crooks even more money. The idea is the payment has been made. What kind of redemption? Who did he actually purchase? Because it says he did. This idea that redemption has been done. Who did he redeem? He didn't just make it possible. One, one concept, just as we think about that. The next one is if we look at Romans 3, and I referenced this earlier when I said that Jesus has been presented as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now this is a concept we spoke about in the work of Christ. This idea of, it's only a word we typically use in in Bible world, in church world, in theology world, it's the idea of propitiation. It's a specific word, and it's a word that simply means to turn away wrath. That's what propitiation means. And wrath is a righteous response to sin, God's judgment, his righteous anger, his indignation. That at the blood of Christ shed on the cross, it says that this was a sacrifice of atonement, that it turned away God's wrath. How would this work if it was not an actual atonement, but only a possible one for some? I mean, possible one for all. How would it work if it was an actual, if it says that, as we read this verse, that it was a sacrifice of atonement? Now, in, in legal terms, there is this idea of double jeopardy, right? That you cannot be charged and tried and punished uh, twice for the same crime. So if we think about that, if a crime is only punished once, and if the cross was an actual atonement, it has to mean that it was only for some. Why? Because if it was an atonement for all, how would God be just if at the end he not only poured out his wrath upon his son, but upon sinners as well? Are you tracking with me? Okay, good. 
this idea of if God's wrath is turned away at the cross, it can only be for some. Because God in his justice cannot pour out punishment again if he's already poured it out on his son. A third one, not only redemption and propitiation, but this idea of reconciliation found in Romans chapter 5 and elsewhere. And these are just representative. We could spend an evening going through verse after verse after verse of areas where these kinds of things are are illustrated but here it talks about reconciliation and he says since we have now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him for if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life not only is this so but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation this idea of reconciliation is God bringing together uh, those who are estranged. And in this context, he says, we were God's enemies and we were reconciled at the cross. That his death accomplished reconciliation. It didn't just make it possible. We received, he says, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So these are all verses and ideas that point to the fact that not, it's not option one. <laughs> that it's not that it made it possible. It actually did it. That when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. What the Father had sent him to do, he did. He purchased salvation. Now I want us, if we would, to look at scriptures now that continue to point at a particular redemption. If we ask the question, what scripture points to this idea of a particular re redemption? And again, I'm going to go over a brief selection of these with the time that we have, but it's not limited to these. And they simply point to the fact that there is a limiting dynamic of intent. Remember, that's what we're answering. How did this work? What did God have in mind? And we can only know that as we look at the pages of Scripture as we are. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, you may say, well, what's the major significance for that? He didn't say for all. He said for many. Now what's interesting is you can kind of go from a, the word world, which we will in just a moment, down to many. But it's much more difficult to go from many and translate it to mean the world. Jesus said that there's a, a difference when he says that there's, uh, he gave his life as a ransom for many. It is not necessarily, in fact, it is limiting it, not saying all. This is further seen in John chapter 10, just another verse that Jesus applies a sense of focused intent when it comes to him laying down his life. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. 
in this context, when Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, it cannot mean all people. The whole point of this passage is he's distinguishing between those who listen to his voice, who are his sheep, and those who do not, who are not his sheep. So to say that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep is not a euphemism of saying all of us. It is a specific expression of he's saying my sheep are my people who know my voice. We're running out of time and I'm sure the question that's itching in many people's minds if only a few is what about passages that seem to say something else entirely? I mean, you can cherry-pick these all you want all night, Steve, but are there, there are other passages that seem to express a different concept. Like when we, we won't go into them yet, so just leave this slide up here, but if we say, you know, passages we can think of that say salvation is for, for all, right? Or the world, or whoever. Let's just walk through some of those, if that's all right. And before we do, I want to bring up Another 90s movie reference. Same movie. A couple weeks ago, I brought up, uh, what was the guy's name? Miracle Max, right? Miracle Max, when he said, your friend is only mostly dead, when we were talking about total depravity. This is Inigo Montoya, right? If those of you who know the movie, and he works with this other group of guys and there's one little guy who's got a little bit of a lisp and he sounds like he's from New Jersey where I grew up and he constantly says inconceivable right and and he goes you know you keep using that word I don't think it means what you think it means now that's just a helpful thing for us to keep in mind when we come to these passages because all of us all of us can be influenced to reading scripture from our perspective and assuming our perspective is the right one to have and the challenge of reading scripture is to remind ourselves that it was written centuries ago thousands of miles away with a completely different cultural perspective language and so forth it doesn't mean it's irrelevant it just means the meaning isn't locked in 21st century Western Europe or Western civilization. It's not. The meaning is tied with what the original author intended using the words and grammar available to him. So let's look at some of these verses that tend to be the ones that are most challenging. The first one in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 6. It says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. Huh. Gotcha, Steve. <laughs> right? But, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So the key question to ask ourselves here is, what does all people mean? Now all, you can interpret that as saying all, meaning without exclusion. And for that, you would have to say that God wants or will wills, and we'll get into that in another passage, that everyone without exception will make it to heaven, which we've already said is not the case. The context of 1 Timothy is super important here. 
Because the context of 1 Timothy is basically this. Paul is coaching Timothy around a number of things. One of them is about dealing with false teachers who are infiltrating the church. And the emphasis of their teaching is that the gospel can't go to Gentiles without them first becoming Jews. They have to be Judaized, which for men meant they needed to be circumcised and they needed to obey the dietary laws and all these different things, which is what the gospel was going to the Gentiles and they concluded that wasn't necessary. And so this idea of all people, as we read this, if we read it through the lens of what Paul is trying to tell Timothy, in fact, if I open up to 1 Timothy, I just want to emphasize one aspect of this, because he says before this, in verses 1, if you open up your Bibles there, feel free, but I'm just going to read this. He says, I want requests, intercession, and thanksgiving to be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority. So he puts a category out there. A category of people who would have been least likely to respond and most likely to persecute them. And he says that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. Now in a Jewish person's mind at that time, there's two types of people in the world. Us and the world. <laughs> Everybody else. Those are the categories. And what he's emphasizing here, it's not about what these Judaizers are teaching. It's not that it's for us only, for the Jews. He goes, it's for the world, for a category of people. All people means all categories. Not necessarily every individual. Obviously, it can't be every individual. And so this is where this idea, and we have to get comfortable with a little bit, and here's a little bit of a lesson for us. Language has nuance. So when we study the Bible, we cannot simply go and say, and this is the danger when you hear guys talk about original language, right? If you want to learn Greek and Hebrew and things like that. Um, Mike has a great expression for this from his seminary professor. It's kind of like underwear. You want to make sure you have it, but you don't want to show it to everybody when you use the original language, all right? So I love that. It's so great. But here's where it matters. Because it doesn't simply work like if you go to a resource and say, it's this word. And then you go to a dictionary and say, well, it says it's this, therefore that's what it means. That's not how language works. We can have a range of meanings for any one word. And it's the context that determines what that word means. Like in a hall like this, at least in the States, I don't know if it's true here, but if I were to yell out, fire, that could be considered a crime because it could cause a panic. If I were to say, oh, what are you guys doing tonight? It's fire. You would know I'm going to be sitting in my back garden enjoying a cup of coffee or something and just relaxing. The same word has different meanings on context. It's nuanced. And so when we think of this word, when it says all people or the world, you need to think, what is it really referring to? And is this the, the first reading that I come with it to in my cultural understanding, is that accurate? Another one, just to move on here, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, just so you know, no matter where you land on option one or option two, this is one of the trickiest passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Mike mentioned Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, which is one. 2 Peter 3 is also one of those tricky ones. And it comes down to, again, this idea of nuance. And what do these words mean? That word want. What does it mean that God doesn't want anyone to perish? It's a word that the translators of this version of the Bible, the NIV that we use here, made a decision on. They said it's kind of this idea of want. But it's a word that we use to translate will. And there's different ideas of God's will. One is his will of what will come to pass, right? If God says, I'm going to create the world, and he wills that, it came to pass. That's one dynamic of his divine will that cannot be thwarted. There's also the idea of his... um, Oh, his, his prescriptive will, or we come to like the Ten Commandments, and as we read them, and we read that God doesn't want us to bear false witness, that, that uh, we're not to commit adultery, that is a revelation of his will as well. But there's also a way in which the Bible uses this word to express a bit of the, to apply human qualities to God, a bit of his emotive decision world dynamic. And what it's saying here is, is similar to that verse that says that God does not delight um, in the wicked perishing, right? That he's, he's not, a, he, he's not a, a vindictive, mean God, but he's a just God. He will judge. He will judge. I've heard someone say it's like, it's like a judge who, uh, a human judge who has uh, perhaps a family member come before the bench, and who passes a sentence based on the evidence, not with joy, (laughs) but with consistency. That's a bit of what this is getting at, this idea of that aspect of God's will. And the other question around this is the any, the anyone. Again, we read that and we naturally and initially think, oh, this means anyone. But if, if I were to make, again, the expression tonight, well, Anyone who wants to, let's go for a walk afterwards tonight. Now, obviously, who am I speaking to? You, (laughs) right? I'm speaking to this room. Now, I am also speaking some way on the internet, but you get what I'm saying, that this isn't a, there's a way in which the word is limited by the context, right? It's not, I'm not making a statement to the world. Anyone who wants to, it's limited to those being addressed in a sense. And that's what's happening here because it can be focused and again can come down to a category of people or a group. If we think about what groups it could be, could I just suggest that it could be the elect? Those whom God has chosen? Why would I say that? Because he says that he's patient, he's written to believers, and he says God is patient with who? You, not willing for any to perish, but everyone of a category to come to repentance. Now, you may think that sounds a little convoluted, but think of what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28, back what we read about the sheep. 
And in John chapter 10, verse 28, I'll just read this quickly so I don't misquote it. Jesus says of the sheep and of his people, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So this idea has already been stated by Jesus of his desire that all that are his would come and would not perish. I only say this in all of these to say that it's not a contradiction. These aren't game enders for a particular redemption. In fact, in many ways, I think they support it rather strongly. 1 John 2.2, just as we finish up, I've run over here, but 1 John 2.2 says this, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Also that idea of it's not just for a single category of people. He's a global savior. He's for all nations. Go make disciples of all nations is what Jesus said. Which again, probably the most foundational one we could come to, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. What does this mean? It means God's posture of love is towards the world, towards all kinds of people, towards the nations. He's not saying he's going to save the world, is he? When he says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world. So if we follow our logic of saying, for God so loved the world, that it means also then he did love the world, his posture of love is towards the world, but he's also saying, He's going to save the world. Does that mean every last person? No. Clearly no. So it can have nuanced meanings even within the same set of verses. Whoever believes. Again, not a problem. It's about the how and why they believe. Option two, particular redemption. Say whoever believes. Is how they come to that point of belief and why. See, because the question we need to ask, if you go to the next slide, and I'll try to wrap this up quickly, is what's the real nature of unbelief? Is it unimpacted by total depravity? This idea, is it morally neutral or is it actually sin? If we look at our lives, right, and we say, it's salvation is possible. It's not up to God's sovereign working and making it happen and bringing people to him. Then somewhere in this sphere of, of life, we think there's a little vestige or island that's been uncorrupted, that is morally neutral and can somehow be coaxed by you and me or something in and of themselves to react and respond to God. And that's just clearly not the portrayal of Scripture that we've been seeing. That we're dead in our sins and our transgressions. In fact, we went through this in Hebrews just a few weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. That unbelief, it says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Unbelief is not morally neutral. 
It is enslavement. And what God does is he works through the universal proclamation of the gospel to awaken those and give life to those whom he's chosen. And we often talk about the gospel as an offer, that we offer salvation to people. And what I would put before you tonight is just to think about it a little differently, and I think a little more biblically, that it's a call and it's a command. When Jesus arrived, what did he do? He came proclaiming the good news. Repent, believe. It was a command. It was a call. And some obey that call. Why? Not because there's some vestige of them that they, they are still able to respond, but God in his gracious, merciful choice said, this one's mine. And gives life. And so the encouragement of that as we end is we as a church, as Christians, actually proclaim not that salvation is possible. We proclaim salvation, full, free, finished. And those who are his will believe. And that's our confidence. We proclaim redemption. It's done. We proclaim uh, propitiation. His wrath has been turned away. It's not that there's simply a possibility of it. It is available. And so the question that comes down just in the end before we sing, before I pray, this is why it matters. It may be what you're thinking. I don't know, because in the room tonight, and if you're here as a guest and you think, this, is, this has been interesting, right? But here's what it boils down to. Is we looked under the bonnet for a little bit, saying, how does this thing work? You close it down and you say, what about you? Because in the abstract, none of us can look at this and answer the question, did Jesus die for me? You can't answer that abstractly. You know how you can know if he died for you? Say yes to him. Come to him. That's how you can know. You can't know without coming. You don't know it ahead of time. But as he calls you, which we'll, call, we'll talk about next week, as he calls you, you come and you put your faith in him. And that's how you can know that you're one of his. And that's how you can know that the atonement was for you. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this again has been one of those stretching moments. And I pray that uh, as we sang those songs earlier and I thought of the words of them in light of what I was going to talk about, it just stretched my appreciation of you that much more, Father. That you bled and died not for some abstract possibility. Lord Jesus, you bled and died for me. And my name was graven in your hands. And so, Father, tonight as we sing about the cross, as we close... I pray that you would work in a powerful way in each and every person here. You are sovereign over all of this. You are in control. And we pray that as we sing, your spirit would implant truths, but more importantly, draw us to the one to whom those truths point. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.